Today's episode is brought to you by BCB Group. You're going to be hearing more about them later on in this interview, which begins right now. Very happy to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Francis Coppola, economist and author. Francis, welcome back to Forward Guidance. Hi, it's glad to be back. It's fantastic to have you, Francis. It's been too long. I think our last interview was the first day of March when uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine was in its early stage and in an even earlier stage was the West's sanctions on Russia. The West, uh, the U.S. had made a lot of statements from the Treasury that sounded very foreboding, but you really peered through the veil, and it actually wasn't that intense. The SWIFT thing, I think that ban had had just uh, was just getting started, and I, I think Europe was even in an even earlier stage. So, uh, Francis, could you just, uh, you know, it's been over a month since we last spoken. What has happened on the the sanctions ground, and what do you, what has stood out to you? What's been significant? Well, most of the changes in sanctions over the last month have been to do with individuals. So um, lots of oligarchs have been sanctioned, um, significant people in Putin's regime, um, people who don't necessarily live in Russia. I mean, famously, where I live in the United Kingdom, um, they sanctioned uh, Roman Abramovich, who owned one of our football clubs. And the football club ever since then has been operating on a government license to to operate with um, considerable restrictions. And now there are attempts to buy it. And that if somebody buys it, the money will have to go into an escrow account. So Abramovich can't actually get his hands on it and so on. And there been, and then he fought, he fought back in a way by, by um, claiming to have been attacked um, <laughs> by Russia, um, attempted poisoning. And um, so a lot of it has been focused on individuals. The idea being that if we can, if, if the West can hurt the people close to Putin, they can lean on Putin to change his plans to, to give up on his um, attempts to, to break, break Ukraine. Um, I have to say, a lot of people kind of cast some shade on this, saying it's not that simple. The most influential people around Putin are not necessarily the people who run, his, run the businesses, um, the very rich people. They are other people who have significant influence on him. So it's not clear the extent to which sanctioning oligarchs will have the desired effect. But certainly it's it's caused a bit of a storm, for sure. And how much damage to the Russian economy have the sanctions that we've already placed uh, uh, imposed on the Russian economy? Well, estimates I'm seeing now are predicting um, a recession in Russia, a collapse of fall in GDP of the order of 10%, which is significant. Um, we've also seen significant capital flights. And as ever with these kind of things, they hurt in particular sectors and unfortunately often hurt poorer people more. Um, so I, I think the damage to the Russian economy is going to be significant, but I still think that until we have a comprehensive ban on sales of, of oil and gas to the West, um, it's not going to hurt as much as it needs to. Um, and we are still some distance from that. I know, I noticed that the US has now imposed full, full sanctions on Spurbank, but still not on Gazprom Bank. So you still, the West still can buy oil and gas. And I know that they've been mulling over, um, an embargo on sales of oil, but gas seems, uh, certainly in Europe, still seems to be sacrosanct. Really? So the US has not banned Russian energy and oil? I, I feel like I've seen headlines that the US has. But you're really in the weeds and you're saying it's more complicated. Yeah, the US has. Um, but um, 
it, it's it's all part of a global oil market, and because because other countries also buy Russian oil and gas, there isn't a comprehensive ban on Russian oil and gas. Individual com- countries, some individual countries have, including the US and the UK as well, but in Europe there is still huge resistance to anything like that. And some of the most significant resistance is coming from Germany, which um, really does significantly affect um, European view on this. And that matters. Um, you know, and there's also the question of, of to what extent um, Russia can divert its sales to China. Um, we don't know. There's some issues there with um, you know, physical transfer. They don't have the pipelines in place, basically yet they're working on it um so although the us embargo on oil and gas will hurt to some extent it won't hurt i think as much as uh, as 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 might be thought because the it's still possible for other countries to buy oil and gas whereas had they sanctioned gazprom bank um to prevent oil and energy transactions taking place prevent anything from being settled in dollars, I think that might have had a more comprehensive effect. A, a lot of directions that we can go. I guess we'll, we'll stick with Germany. How has the appetite to impose sanctions on Russian energy, has that gone up over time? Does it seem more or less likely? I know Germany just re, uh, reported it's one of its inflation indicators, the producer price index, that was at a shocking 31%. So if there, if there isn't a ban yet and producer inflation is already at 31%. Uh, do you think that it, it would go much higher and sort of, uh, is that too big of a cost for Germany to bear? Well, I, I think Germany isn't exactly making itself any friends at the moment because it has been very kind of, oh no, we mustn't hurt our own economy about the sanctions and even about things like supplying arms. Um, it has been kind of a little bit reluctant to do so. In fact, uh, there, there's a report today saying that um, Olaf Scholz is is facing pressure from his own party um, because of his opposition to supplying heavy weapons to Ukraine. So, you know, the, the, the mood, if you like, um, regarding Russia is tightening, I think. So it may be that Germany will be eventually forced just by public mood to chase it, change its stance um, but the, the producer price inflation is quite shocking, actually. Uh, and that does suggest, actually, that um, sanctions are biting in a different way, that if you make it very difficult for a country, even that's holding out on sanctions, actually to buy um, buy things at world prices, it's going to face much higher producer price inflation. The fact is that Germany is completely dependent upon external supplies for, for energy. Um, and, and to a large extent on Russia, and uh, the price is rocketing. So it's it's losing out either way. Do you, yeah, so I think the price of oil reached its peak uh, in early April, maybe shortly after we did our first interview. Since then, it, it has been muted, and that, that was the peak. We haven't made a new high, leading a lot of people to say, oh, that high was only due to speculation, not due to fundamentals. Therefore, uh, Germany has more bargaining power than perhaps we think. What do you think about that? I mean, you know, how high do you think the price of natural gas or oil could go if Germany does move forward with these sanctions on on Russian energy? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think we should say that, that for Germany, it's gas rather than oil that's the problem. Um, and there was actually quite a bifurcation in the oil market whereby, you know, the prices, the price of WTI moderated. In fact, the price of everything moderated except Russian oil, which they couldn't unload at any price. So when, um, the private sector itself imposes an embargo on, on an oil supplier, never mind what governments do, the private sector didn't want to buy Russian Russian oil. Um, the price of Russian oil collapses and the price of every other sort of oil goes up. And so people um, pay more for their oil simply because of that. And that, that's been an interesting effect as well. But I don't think we've seen it to quite the same extent in the gas market, I think, because Russia has, in, certainly in Europe, Russia has rather cornered that market. So it's actually quite difficult to do. Certainly, there's more, more sources of supply in, in the oil market. So, but yes, it is an interesting question. Um, I, I, there was quite a, a noticeable spike in both oil and gas at that time, and that may well have been driven up by speculation, and it has calmed, calmed down since. Um, there, there were other things like um, the US agreeing to draw on its strategic oil reserve, that would have made a difference. Um, you know, it, so um it, it, the kind of supply constraints in the market um have been eased a little bit i think one way or another um so that would have brought prices down as well but yeah there were probably some speculators jumping on the bandwagon oh definitely and your what is your maybe more longer term or midterm view on commodity prices and you know in particular non-Russian countries able to withstand it. And let's turn to another commodity, which is wheat. I know Ukraine and Russia combined produce something like 30%, uh, maybe a little bit shy of that, of the world's wheat supply, which sounds like a lot, and it is. However, I also learned that only a small fraction of that is actually exported. A lot of it is consumed within the country. So you had a, you know, a surge in the price of wheat even more dramatic than the surge uh, of oil. And that too has moderated. So, so what about wheat? And you, and you can choose any other commodities that you think yeah. stand out. Again, I think we see we've seen what we tend to see at the start of any global crisis, which is a mad panic. I mean, if you think back to March 2020, we kind of saw similar disruptions in financial markets at the time, going by everybody panicking, and you know, and and in the in the UK, we had hoarding of of certain foodstuffs, leading to shortages of them that were nothing to do with the pandemic and everything everything to do with people hoarding, and you you see the same effects in in world markets that you know you get kind of uh, people um, dropping out of certain markets or all crowding in. To certain markets to buy before the price goes up, um, you get you know those kinds of effects. So it's not surprising really to see short-term disruptions in in commodity markets at the start of a war, um, because wars do disrupt supply chains. Um, what's hard to to tease out is the extent to which the price rises you're seeing at the beginning of the war are sustained. Um, or will be repeated later on, or whether they simply are this immediate, oh my goodness, the world has, sh the world has shifted under our feet effect. And it eventually calms down and people adapt to the changes in the markets. Um, I think at the moment it's a little too early to say because the war itself is changing over time. I mean, I mean there are developments all the time. Russia's now testing ICBMs, which is clearly intended as a, as a threat to Europe, um, not to the US so much, because I don't think their ICBMs would even reach New York, but they definitely would reach cities in, in Europe. 
And um, there's no point in testing ICBMs at this stage in a war unless you think that you can use them to hold your um, your opponent's supporters' feet to the fire. And I would say that's what's going on, is supplying pressure to Europe. So, And that in itself would tend to cause disruptions in, in markets. Um, as far as food markets are concerned, though, this is an interesting one because um, wheat markets... When those are disrupted, the countries that suffer most are those that don't have a very diversified food supply. So it doesn't tend to be countries like the US and UK and developed countries generally that suffer, particularly. I mean, the price of bread goes up, so we go and eat something else instead, don't we? It's the countries where it's a stable foodstuff and they're in big trouble if the price goes up. Um, and we saw this in 2009 when we had a QE-driven increase in the price of wheat, then, of grains then, um, which caused um, uh, food prices to spike, staple food prices to spike sharply in the Middle East and North Africa, um, and l- resulting in food riots and protests. And, it, and it's uh, thought to have triggered the Arab Spring revolts that ran across the Middle East in in 2009, 10, 11, about then. Um, So uh, I would expect this time the kind of disruptions we're seeing to food markets if we do see a disruption in the supply of food from Ukraine, of grains from Ukraine and from Russia, and maybe from other satellite states as well. For example, Kazakhstan now has banned um, export of grains uh, um, to preserve its own supplies. And that's going to have a knock-on effect to other countries in that area who are very reliant on Kazakhstan for supplies of foodstuffs. Um, and they will then have to buy grains on the open market and that will push up prices. So um, it's those countries that are going to be particularly affected by any spike in, in world food world food st- grain prices um, rather than developed countries which tend to have more diversified supplies. I think the problem with developed countries is more to do with disruption of, of supply chains, which we already had because of the pandemic. And of course, that's not over. So one of the things that's happening right now is disruption of supply chains because of a lockdown in Shanghai. It's nothing to do with the Ukraine war, but it's absolutely going to affect our food supplies. Uh, and we shouldn't ignore what's going on in the rest of the world. Definitely not. Francis, just in your own country of England, the price of natural gas has imposed a a severe cost. I I saw you you retweet uh, something about a utility company uh, having a price cap rise on April 1st, which doubled the number of families in, in fuel stress to 5 million people. Yeah. Just in, just in based on what you've seen on the ground, how are people handling that? Do do people have enough enough uh, money in the bank or enough credit to be able to withstand that, or are they? Is it destroying demand in other areas where they spend more on gas, so they're going to spend less on, uh, um, you know, clothes, uh, toys, stuff like that? Well, it's kind of hard to say. I must add that it's not just one utility company. It was actually it, um, gas prices in, in the UK are actually a managed price. So this was a cap, cap imposed by the government um, or by the, the regulator Ofcom on all utility companies. So in effect, all utility companies have now been able to raise their prices, which they couldn't before. So that's what's happened. It affects everybody. Um, the people who are particularly affected by this are people on low incomes. Um, people on low incomes tend to spend more of their incomes on things like utilities, 
and essential goods anyway. And so they've been particularly badly hit by this. Um, and um, also some of them have been hit are being hit by other changes as well, notably the withdrawal last autumn of the increase in, in temporary increase in universal credit introduced during the pandemic um, to make life easier for people on low incomes. I must emphasise universal credit in the UK is not unemployment benefit. It includes unemployment benefit, but a substantial proportion of those who receive it are actually in work, but on low incomes. So it's like earned income tax credits. We 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 had those as well, and we just merged everything into one, really. Um, so, but it is particularly people who are out of work that are hit by this, because people in work had an increase in uh, had a change in what we call the taper, which is the rates at which universal credit is withdrawn as your income rises. So that taper was relaxed, so people don't lose so much of their income as they as they as they their income rises. And don't don't lose so much of the universal credit, and that makes a difference to people's uh, total income. So it's particularly those who are not working, whether it's because they are unemployed, and we still do have elevated unemployment um, as a result of the pandemic, um, although not as much, I think, as in other countries, um, and also um, people who are out of work because they are ill or because their disabilities are so severe that they can't work. They're particularly affected. And the other group of people who are going to be affected by this quite significantly are pensioners. And, and because of that, I mean, pensioners are quite a considerable proportion of our economy. Um, and so we might well find that if they start cutting back on disposable spending because they're having to um, spend more on, on heating and, and uh, lighting and what have you, that, that we will suffer demand reduction and, and potentially a fall in GDP. The um, IMF is currently forecasting lower GDP growth for the U UK next year. And I'm not terribly surprised by that, really. And I think myself that the IMF's most recent um, estimates are on the optimistic side. What's your rough forecast for inflation it can be in britain it can be in the us europe europe uh, anywhere do you think you know for so long people have said that uh, now is the top oh no, wait now now is the top no, no, now no. is the top of inflation <laughs> when do you think we will finally hit peak inflation this is really hard because wars are inflationary uh, for lots of reasons so here i was i was i was team transitory originally i was of i would i had always said right back from april 2020 when we first went into the pandemic and um started to see falling prices because of the pandemic and there were lots of people arguing for helicopter money and universal basic income and all sorts of things and i remember saying there will be inflation when the economy reopens after the pandemic has passed um because we are supporting demand with um, extensions to unemployment benefits, extensions in my country to universal credit, with furlough schemes, with um, you know handouts uh, like, the, like the CARES Act. There was a lot of money given out and there were also a significant proportion of people who worked throughout, drew their full salaries and couldn't spend them. So, we, so quite a lot of people actually ended up with more money as a result of the pandemic than they had before. And it's fair to say some of those people are now spending that money. And that's one of the things that's driving inflation is spending, now spending down the money that they accumulated during the pandemic. 
And so I thought that there would be inflation because demand would recover quicker than supply, and that would mean um, price rises in the short term, and it would moderate as the supply side picked up. Um, then we had a war. And wars, I said wars are inflationary. And also, um, they disrupt supply chains, they disrupt markets, they disrupt everything. Um, you know, Russia is an oil producer, Ukraine is a grain producer, here we go again. Um, plus, of course, the pandemic isn't over. And people keep forgetting this, that just because in the UK, now we've lifted all restrictions and said, well, it's basically up to people to keep themselves safe. And you're kind of, kind of heading in the same, and the United States is kind of heading in the same direction. Um, doesn't mean the, pan- the virus has gone away. It definitely hasn't. There's a proportion of people who haven't returned to work and have and are not going to. There are a lot of people who've retired early. There are people who are scared to return to work. And in other parts of the world, we still have an active pandemic. We've got a full, as I mentioned just now, we've got a full lockdown in Shanghai. <laughs> and that is a serious problem for the whole world. So um, I'm personally of the opinion that we are going to see higher inflation and for a longer period of time um, because the kind of supply disruptions that ought to be calming down now are not going to calm down now because of the disruptions to supply caused by Ukraine's sanctions. And I should emphasize it is the sanctions that do this, not the war itself. It's the West's response to it is inflationary by definition. Um, and also the continuing pandemic um, supply chain disruption from elsewhere in the world is going to drive up prices as well. And how does that whole mishmash that you just laid out, how does that infect the, the, the central bank response function? Because, okay, the pandemic, it's long lasting. There are remain people who are going to be unemployed and not going back to work. Uh, there's a lot of impairments that will persist, in other words. So therefore, maybe the central bank should be dovish. You know, our star natural rate of interest should be uh, lower, perhaps perhaps negative. But on the other hand, you have these huge inflationary problems that, yes, they are mostly supply chain driven. But just because they're supply chain driven doesn't mean it's not inflation. You know, if someone's price of the price of something went up 20 percent, someone when a consumer buying it doesn't say, oh, this is supply driven. So it's actually not inflation. You know, they they, they still buy it. So uh so how did uh, you know? In the, the Federal Reserve has seen a big shift from very dovish to less dovish, perhaps hawkish. How has the European Central Bank uh, performed in terms of these pressures? When yeah, war is very inflationary. These sanctions very inflationary. So the European Central Bank, you know, should be hiking rates every you know every every meeting, and yet they remain quite dovish, right? Okay, let's talk through different areas because the. There are two different things here, and and let's talk about the US first. Now, the US had enormous, not only monetary stimulus, but also fiscal stimulus during the pandemic. In my view, it did too much, right? So I opposed the first helicopter drop during, during the pandemic, the CARES Act helicopter drop, because I felt that the US should be doing, should be targeting people who didn't have the means to live, rather than giving indiscriminate handouts to everybody. And the reason for that was I knew that people who didn't need that money wouldn't be able to spend it because we were shutting down half the economy. And so they would save it. And then when the economy reopened, they would spend it, right? Um, so I felt it was wrongly timed. It would not have the effect of stimulating the economy as 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 the 
uh, as people thought, because, you know, what's the point of stimulating at the same time as you're shutting down? It's absurd, right? Um, You then did a second drop, uh, and that was, in my view, a big mistake. That once having done the first one, you had to wait and see if the when that started to be spent down, whether that was enough to stimulate the economy. And 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 Joe Biden, the president, didn't wait. Um, and I can understand why he didn't. But because of that, I think you've overstimulated, and therefore the Fed does need to raise rates. Right? That's my position on the US. Right? I, and that's entirely independent of what else is going on in the world. I think the US needs to raise rates. The Fed needs to raise rates. How much it needs to raise them by is an interesting question. Um, what the amount it's priced in at the moment is kind of going to bring it back to where it was before the pandemic rather faster than we thought. I and mean, we should be aware of, of how far we, we removed we are from the kind of level of interest rates, um, say, in 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 2005 right you know when we when interest rates were over five percent now we say five percent oh my goodness that's massive and it wasn't it was normal now we're talking about like 2.7 percent or something and we might get there by 2024 and say my goodness that's hawkish and i can't really i'm not saying it's hawkish compared even to where we were before the pandemic that's not hawkish so let's have. I think we need some perspective on this. You know, we are not talking about huge interest rates rises here. We are still talking about a really gradual and cautious approach, even in the situation where we've got quite high inflationary pressures coming from um, the the fiscal side, um, which is. Uh, domestically generated. I imagine what the Fed will be looking out for will be evidence that um, there's some kind of wage price spiral developing, whether people are starting to demand and get higher wages in general because of um, cost of living increases. The argument would be that um, while while unemployment is elevated, that's unlikely. And while unions continue to have little power. That's maybe unlikely, but we'll see. And I imagine that's what they're watching. And that'll also be what they're watching in Europe as well, Um, certainly in the UK. And I think also the ECB will be watching it as well to see what kind of um, wage price developers, endogenous, what you might call endogenous pressures, where you get a feedback loop, where you know prices rise, so people demand higher wages to compensate, and employers think they can get away with rising prices, so they they uh, agree to the higher wage rises, and round we go again. That's a, a wage price spiral like we had in the 1970s, and that's what central banks will be wanting to nip in the bud. Um, I, I have to say, I'm not seeing much evidence of it at the moment. And and I think a lot of that is, I mean, certainly where I am, is because we've got a very large public sector and we've got um, the government is imposing limits on pay rises in the public sector. And when you've got a public sector of that size, that's kind of setting the the, the wage price level um, for for the private sector as well. So if if your if your public sector is limited to one percent, then your private sector is not going to offer a great deal more. So I'm I'm not I'm kind of not buying this. Um, wage price arguments. So if I can turn now to Europe and the inflationary pressures here, which are much more external than they are in the US, right? It is about um, world prices, about gas and oil particularly. Now, when you've got that kind of cost pushing inflation, which is massively pushing up producer prices, it's a question of to the extent to which producers can 
and impose those price rises on the population. If they can, then you get inflation and you also get a recession <laughs> because people can't afford them. It, it, you, the, only, you, the only way you don't get a recession is if wages go up as well, which is exactly what um, central banks do, don't want. So the, the kind of juggling act for the ECB will be the fact that um, the outlook for European growth is really not very good. And the fiscal position in most European countries is quite tight and will be tighter because the Maastricht Treaty limits will start to bite again soon. So lots of them will have to go go back into austerity. Can you explain what that is, Francis? The Maastricht? Yeah. Um, the Maastricht Treaty Limits, the fiscal compact, was effectively suspended during the pandemic. Now, that's the rule that basically says countries should not be running um, fiscal deficits of more than 3% or have debts in, exceed of, in excess of 60% of their GDP. And of course, during the pandemic, <laughs> lots of them were way over that, including Germany. <laughs> Um, but they were only suspended, not abandoned. And so there's pressure to start reimposing those limits again. And if they do, then lots of countries in the EU will have to tighten their belts in order to get their deficits down and start bearing down on their public debt. And if that happens, then we're back into the kind of post financial crisis period, um, situation again, where you've got fiscal tight- tightness across the whole of the EU. Um and the ECB then will be under pressure to keep monetary policy loose to accommodate that. So uh, I would guess that Lagarde is seeing that coming and thinking, I don't think we can proceed very far fast with monetary tightening because we've got that coming up. Um, and plus also the point that when your producer prices are high, um, unless your wage wages can grow to match what's being passed on to customers, the effect is deflationary <laughs> because people can't afford it. So um, people will pay more for essential goods like you know their own utility bills and food and things like that and cut spending elsewhere to accommodate. Um, and so the fact that producer prices are high does not necessarily mean there's going to be high or sustained sustained consumer price inflation, and it can trigger a recession. So the ECB will have to tread very cautiously, I think, about monetary tightening. And the Bank of England also, though to to a lesser extent, because the UK growth has been stronger, but then arguably from a lower base. What do the interest rate futures look like for the Bank of England as well as the the European Central Bank. I know there was a time that there was a huge rise in in forward forecasts of European interest rates, but since that's that's moderated because uh, the ECB indicated it would be more dovish. So just just tell us, you know, I know people people watching this, they they might know the Fed. The terminal rate is just above three percent by the, the summer of 2023, and by 2022, December 2022, end of this year, it's uh, you know somewhere above two percent. But what what are we talking about in in Europe and then the Bank of England? Last time I looked, well, certainly the one I was looking at, looking at the German ones today, and they appear to be still negative, which is most weird. Um, so, uh, I guess what the message I'm getting from on on interest rates is is um, that they are going to go up a little bit and then kind of come down again. I think really. 
Uh, I think that's that's where we are. That uh, central banks uh, that central banks in Europe might raise rates in response to inflationary pressures, but they will have to bring them down again in twenty three and twenty four because of recessionary pressures. That, that's what I'm seeing. That's a great point, and I'd also add that the forward past pa, pa, what the market is implying for the Fed funds rate. If you look at let's say the euro dollar futures, it has an inversion. So the terminal rate, as I said, yeah. by the M- end of 2023 is somewhere above 3%, but then it slowly trickles down from there, indicating that on average, the market is pricing in a, a net easing. Why would it be easing? Well, because there's a recession. This episode is brought to you by BCB Group, Europe's leading provider of crypto-friendly business banking for institutions in the crypto space. They also provide trading services, allowing you to trade FX and cryptocurrency quickly and at scale. They specialize in efficient execution of large orders in illiquid markets. So if you are an institution looking to make high volume trades, you need to check out BCB Group because a great trade idea is worth nothing if you can't execute it. And that is exactly what BCB Group helps you to do. Their mission is to empower the global financial revolution through sustainable and innovative banking. Really glad to have them as a sponsor. So if you want to take control of your digital assets, please check them out at bcbgroup.com slash jack. That's bcbgroup.com slash jack. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Francis, I want to ask a follow-up question, which is if the situation in Europe is so bad and inflation is deflationary and inflation is recessionary, it is the total opposite of a wage price spiral, then how come bond yields across the board are are rising uh, as they are in the US? You know, in the, in the US, even with the Fed saying, oh, we're going to get to 3.2% or the market saying the Fed's going to get there, even then, even then, people are saying, oh, my God, long-term treasuries are screwed. The, the, bull, the 40-year bull market in treasury bonds is over. It's a thing of the past. Well, I don't know exactly what to think about that. So many times know, over the last decade or so. Oh, no, no the, US is, the US is, is, is screwed. The treasuries are going to collapse. There's going to be hyperinflation, blah, blah, blah. I've heard that so many times, and I'm hearing it again now. This idea that because of the Ukraine war, because of US sanctions, um, Russia and China and India will form some kind of economic unit that will take over from the US and destroy the dollar. And and I'm going, really? Why do you think this? I I need to see more justification than just we're afraid Um, because I am unconvinced. I, I think that dislodging the dollar's dominance and and its sidekick, the euro, frankly, um, in some markets, is actually much more difficult um, than that. That, yes, China is important, but it doesn't have a convertible currency. It doesn't make sense, this. And if you think the ruble's going to take over, then I'm sorry, you're dreaming. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Um, it, it, it doesn't make any sort of sense. So I, I think there's an element of, of kind of sort of fear going on. If you actually looked at the fear and greed indicator now, I think you'd be seeing it very firmly in fear territory. And when that happens, well, one of two things can happen when that happens, depending on their view of the US. So um, when um, the fear greed in, in index uh, has has been in, in fear territory in the past, often treasury yields have fallen because everybody rushes in, and the dollar has risen because everybody's been rushing into safe havens. And um, and so uh, they, they're buying treasuries and they're buying the dollar, right? Um, this time, 
Um, it's a little more complicated, merely because I think of this um, kind of bit of this thing about is 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 China are China and India going to displace the dollar? There's a little bit more fear, so treasury yields aren't falling as much as might have been expected. They are rising a bit. The dollar is though. You know, I, I if I if if this was the end of the dollar, as some some are predicting, I would be expecting a hyperinflationary collapse, and it's not what we've got. It's not what markets are predicting either. So I, I kind of don't buy it. Right. Well, the the dollar is exploded higher. I think a lot of that is because the two biggest components of the U.S. dollar index, the DXY, the euro and the yen, both of those central banks have indicated they're extremely unwilling to tighten monetary conditions to respond so, to the inflation. So, and it's tightening, so the dollar's yeah. going to go up. The other big component of it, of course, is oil. Um, the, 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 the dollar does respond to the oil price. So, um, you know, um, that also will tend to drive up the dollar too. So there are a couple of things there. Uh, if, it, if it's oil, then I would expect the dollar to start coming down, really. But I agree with you about the... About the um, uh, conflicting monetary policy signals would tend to drive up the dollar, as it has done before. I mean, if you recall, um, you know, under Trump, um, you know, the Fed was raising rates and doing quantitative tightening and everybody else was sitting on, with, I mean, the ECB had negative rates, was doing QE. <laughs> and and surprise, surprise, the dollar went up. Oh. Um, we, 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 we played this scene before. Um, right, then the taper in 2014, the dollar exploded higher, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Um yeah, when 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 you have diverging monetary policy, inevitably investors will go for the currency where they're expecting interest rates to rise. Well, that's totally understandable, really. Right. So, Francis, you're absolutely right that the track record of people who historically have been calling for the end of the Treasury bull market has been poor. They've they've been wrong. Uh, there are people who you know are friends of ours, and we have a lot of respect for, like Joseph Wang, who make an argument based on the plumbing that you know. I think something like $2 trillion of treasuries, the Federal Reserve is going to have to sell if they follow through with their plan. And who's yeah. going to buy those treasuries at a time when uh, you know, a credit cycle in terms of bank lending is just getting started? Well, I have a view, I have a view on that. We have a, if we have a credit cycle in terms of bank lending, then the people who are going to buy those treasuries are banks. It's really very straightforward. They need collateral for funding if they're going to do increase their lending. So I don't buy that one either. Uh, Joseph and I don't often disagree, but I, I'm not sure where he's coming from on that one. It doesn't make sense. So what, what do you think about the rise in European yields? I mean, doesn't the fact that you know, the German 30-year bond yield is now in positive territory again, doesn't that indicate, you know, if, if a recession is, is going to happen, uh, like, like, you indicated it might, like the Goldman is, is sort of forecasting. How come bond yields in Europe are, are, are surging? And, and let's say you know, the, the UK, in the United Kingdom, the guilt yields are surging as well. Shouldn't the bond market, uh, if it's, it's recession is coming, shouldn't it snuff that out by, by having yields fall? And the simple answer is inflation, isn't it? I would have thought that, that, that yields are rising because of inflationary pressures. Um, I, I don't, I haven't, I must confess, Confess, I haven't looked at the break at the break evens, but um, the um, unadjusted um, yields would be rising because of inflation. There's also um, political risk, um, and they might also be rising because of that. That actually, Europe 
in it really is more exposed to Ukraine than say the US is. Um, there is a, a non-zero risk of um, the war escalating into Europe. And Germany, it's interesting you mentioned the German 30-year, the Germany's entire economic model is extremely externally de- dependent. You know, they, they re- rely totally on their external surplus, right? And if that collapses, then they are in big trouble. Um, and they are also extremely exposed to Russia because of their gas, because of their energy policy. And they're going to have to rethink that. Um, so it could well be that in the specific case of Germany, the yields are rising simply because of the increased political and economic risk um, caused by Ukraine. What did you mean when you said Germany is dependent on its external surplus? Do you mean the trade surplus that Germany exports more than it imports? And if that, why, first of all, why would that reverse? And secondly, if it reversed, why would that be that so bad? Why would that be so bad? The other side of any export surplus is somebody else's export is somebody else's imports, right? Um, so depending on where it's exporting to, um, first of all, it can very definitely be hit by by the other side of sanctions, one thing. Um, so, for example, if it was in the habit of exporting, say, machinery to, to Russia, um, that's going to be sanctioned, right? Um, but even if it's exporting to other countries, that can be hit by um, recession in those countries, by supply chain difficulties, by complicated clearing through banks, um, all sorts of things like that. So um, um, Germany's external surplus is a fri- is is a fragility for it. I, I I know people see it as a strength, and I have long thought that being that reliant on your external, on the kindness of strangers, if we could put it that way. We get very concerned about countries who are reliant on the kindness of strangers to fund their imports, but we're not nearly concerned enough about the people who are reliant on the kindness of strangers to buy their exports, and yet it's two sides of the same coin. Um, So um, if supply chains were to abruptly reverse if if the war if um everybody said oh we've got to go self-sufficient we've got to cut back and so forth um or even if countries simply went into recession started buying less um germany's surplus could fall um and that would have a a serious knock-on effect into its economy i think the DAX, the the German stock index, is something like 10% of its highs that it was before the war. Do you think that the stock investors are too optimistic? Uh, Stock investors are always optimistic, aren't they? (laughs) By nature. (laughs) Um, Like I said, people see Germany's export export surplus as a strength. And it doesn't ever occur to anybody that it, that there are weaknesses in it. So, I think everybody's seeing German as Germany as resilient, um, even though, from my point point of view, there are serious fragilities in its economy, not least its dependence on Russia for gas. Um, so, presumably, um, they are hoping that Germany will weather this storm, or Germany's companies will weather this storm. Uh, final question on the, the ECB. 
So the, the Federal Reserve has already tapered its purchases. Now, now the balance sheet is pretty flat. And it's going to about to embark on a two to trillion, two to three trillion reduction in its balance sheet. What's going on with the yeah. East European Central Bank's balance sheet? Is it still easing? Is it going to taper? Do you think it's going to tighten? What, what's going on there? Well, it's not that easy for the ECB. <laughs> you see, the thing about the Fed is it's only dealing with one country, and it's dealing with the country which it has where the, the the debt of that country is the premier safe asset in world in world markets. So in a way, the the, the Fed can do things that the rest of us can't. <laughs> Um, and the problem the ECB's got is that it is that it is uh, representing um, nineteen countries and influential in a further eight, um, and um, you know some of them some of them their current currencies are pegged to the to the euro, so Denmark and Bulgaria, for example. Um, so the problem it's got is that if you think back to twenty twelve when Draghi did his whatever it takes. What the ECB essentially promised to do was to manage um, monetary policy across the Eurozone in such a way that we didn't get the kind of contagious diversion, divergence in bond spreads over bonds that we did in 2011, 20, 2010 to 11, right? And there was a little bit of wobble when a little bit of a wobble when Lagarde first took charge when she said it's not our business to to control spreads and um, bond, bond yields in periphery countries suddenly went <laughs> like that and the ECB hastily had to issue a correction issue a, a, a climb down saying oh that's about corporate bonds it's not about sovereign bonds the ECB has been supporting sovereigns during the pandemic so it's got it had the PEP program which it is winding down. But it's having to do it extremely carefully and at the moment casting around, for example, to find ways of not suddenly pulling the plug on Greece, which has had a little bit of easing, a slightly easier time fiscally during the pandemic, which was much needed. Um, Faces having the the plug pulled on that all of a sudden are being pushed back into depression again. And Francis, sorry, what is the, the what is the PEP PEP program? Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Um, that was the program under which the ECB essentially bought like stopped sovereign bonds, so that um, all the countries of Europe could afford to support their economies with give fiscal support to their economies, and it and it, it and it bought the bonds of all um, eurozone members, including Greece. And that's separate from the QE program. Greece is excluded from the um, QE program, but it was included in the PEP program. And so there's a huge problem for Greece if the ECB suddenly closes down the PEP program. So they've been trying to find ways of winding it down gradually in such a way that it doesn't hurt periphery countries. One of the things that they'll be watching very closely, I think, will be BTP, BTP yields. That yields on Italian bonds because it it is like the canary in the coal mine. Um, when BTP yields start rising, we've got um, tensions rising within the euro as a single currency. Um, you know, we've got the start of di- of yield divergence um, and contagion. So they'll be watching that very closely, I think, to see um, 
whether they are judging monetary policy right. And it's interesting, isn't it, that nowhere here have I mentioned inflation. And yet the ECB is meant to have a price stability mandate. But actually, in 2012, when Draghi did his whatever it takes, that moved the ECB from a price stability target to a maintain the euro at all costs target. Because actually, they can't maintain price stability unless they keep the euro together. So that's their target. And that's what they'll be watching is um, tensions rising within the euro. And for that reason, the bond the, uh, spreads over bonds will be incredibly important. Yeah, I really do have to agree with you, Francis, that it, it, it is the, the duty of, of the ECB uh, not, not to get step out of my lane. But I think that, you know, a country like Greece being on the mm-hmm. euro system and using that its economy, it, it's a it's a debtor country. It is running a, a fiscal deficit. And if it was the Greek drachma, it could inflate its currency to fix that problem. And yes, there would be inflation, but you know you wouldn't cause a recession. Whereas the fact that it's now part of the euro, it, Germany is basically asking Greece to 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 be in a recession, and Greece has been in it, you know some some form of recession for ten years now. So I think it is, yeah, the least the ECB could do is is uh, sort of have a have a cap on those financing yields. Uh, but I want to ask you, so the, the European Central Bank uh, balance sheet, it's still expanding. It's at about 8.7 trillion euros. I mean, do you think it's going to get to 10 trillion? <laughs> I wouldn't rule it out. <laughs> it really depends how badly the whole European economy is hit by Ukraine. I mean, I, I, you have to come back to that because um, it, it's easy for the US across and Canada across the water to impose sanctions because it actually, in a way, doesn't hurt them quite as directly. But Europe, because so much of Europe does face the East, and we forget this, so we look at, at France and Spain and Italy and think, why does it affect them? Um, but you mustn't, you shouldn't forget about countries like Poland and Hungary, um, and you know the Balkan kind of Croatia, um, and the Baltic countries, and and of course Germany. Uh, Austria, much of that side of of the EU faces east, and these countries have significant relationships with uh, uh, with Russia and with Russian satellite countries, which are majorly disrupted by the Ukraine war. And of course, they have relations with Ukraine itself, which again are majorly disrupted. So, just from that source alone, we're going to see quite a bit of disruption to the European economy. Um, which say the US would not be suffering to the same extent and even Western European nations wouldn't be suffering to the same extent. I think we sometimes forget that Germany is in many respects an Eastern European nation or part of it is. Um, you know, in my lifetime, there were two Germanies, of course, it was West Germany and East Germany, but both of them, are, you know, in terms of Europe, are actually quite far East. Um, and you no, know, now they're unified. Um, you know, they're, uh, they do to some extent phase East. Um, so we shouldn't forget that, that Europe as a whole is going to be much more affected by the Ukraine war. So there will be inflation, but there will also be recessionary pressures because of the Ukraine war, because of the effect of sanctions and because of disruption to things that people take for granted, like their gas supplies. And how has the weaponization of the dollar played out? Because I, I know hundreds of billions of dollars of assets that the uh Russian central bank thought it had as reserves were just canceled, frozen overnight. But I also hear, and I haven't been following this nearly as closely as you have, that the Russian central bank and its, in particular, uh, its leader 
is a very skilled central banker and uh, she has done she has navigated around uh, those hurdles with a lot of skill. Uh, what has she done? You know, how is the Russian ruble able to crash and, the, and then relapse? And uh, you know, what, it, what, is, what is she doing to thwart the, the uh, financial hot war that the US is, is, is giving? Yeah, she's very, very good. When we spoke before, um, I remember you say you commenting that the, the Russian central bank was issuing press releases all the time, whereas every other central bank was almost silent. Um, and I went and looked at those press releases and what she was doing. And what she was doing was shoring up banks. And she was giving, uh, giving out instruction after instruction to banks to shore up their liquidity, to protect them. Um, it was very effective. Now, the problem she's got um, is that when, um, when a currency is under pressure like that, um, it, 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 when you hit a central bank like that, you remove the anchor for its, for its currency. Um, but what she did, and actually what Putin did as well, was impose capital controls. And that's actually what you do um, to preserve your um, reserves when your currency is under pressure. So she's done this, they've done this in various ways. Um, they've, um, uh, um, I mean, they're preventing, preventing people from, from taking um, dollars and euros out of the country, trying to force um, foreigners to pay for um, uh, gas and, and oil in, in rubles, um, and various other measures as well, um, really to um, it, it keep the reserves that they're able to tap um, sacrosanct um, and to, to arrest the fall of the currency. And she's successfully done that, actually, um, um, with a sort of combination of restrictions on banks, restrictions on exporters, um, restrictions on foreigners, um, yeah, the range of capital, control, capital controls. So yeah, and she is very good. She's one banker of the year, central banker of the year twice. I think she's, she is very good. Um, and it's it's a bit sad in a way that um, right. they, early on the kind of mood music from her was she was not at all happy about this invasion, but she's got a job to do and she's going to do it to protect. And the, unfortunately, uh, she's good at her job. And she's good at her job. She is an exceptionally skilled central banker. I, I, nobody I know would would argue with that. Um, you know, I'm you know I'm sure that, that um, people the world over would want to offer her a job, um, but but she's Russian, and um, obviously her loyalty is to Russia. Yeah, of course, we're talking about Elvira uh, Nabulina, president of the Russian Central Bank, Francis. What is going on with Russian debt? I know the U.S. forbade the the secondary trading of Russian debt, and then I know there it looked like it would appear that Russia would default on its debt. However, it paid in rubles. Some people thought that was a default because it was supposed to be paid in dollars. Others said technically uh, it's it's not a default, but now it may be defaulting again. What's going on with the Russian debt? Of course, uh, the sovereign debt. Standard Poor's said it was a default. Um, they basically had that they're still within the grace period, um, but even so, Standard and Paul's decided that uh, Russia wasn't going to pay within the grace period. It's thirty days, by the way, grace period. They're still within that, um, but uh, Standard and Paul's think they won't pay, um, so they have downgraded Russian debt to selective default. Um, 
the US was clearly trying to engineer a default. <laughs> Let's put it that way, and uh, and and they've evidently succeeded. Um, the question is how people will regard that. I think it's it's really important um, in the sense that if no one will hold a dollar, a dollar externally denominated Russian debt, then it makes it much more difficult for Russia to tap investors for foreign currency, which is what it was able to do before. Now, you could say it was very difficult for it to do that anyway, um, but actually saying you simply can't can't pay, <laughs> you can't pay your coupons, um, you are going to default simply because we're not going to let you pay it, um, does kind of- They can't pay in dollars, but they, they, can they, they could pay in rubles, but that would still be a default. That would still be a default. Yeah, it's uh, Lex Monte, it's still a default. <laughs> um, Lex Monte basically says the sovereign that can pay in any kind of pay in its own currency if it wants to, but investors don't have to accept it. <laughs> yeah, it can still be regarded as sovereign default, yes. And so as it stands, one ratings agency at any rate regards it as sovereign default. And if my memory serves me right, I think that is the has also treated it as a credit event, um, so which means that um, credit default swap insurance is paying out. So again, that would be default. Um, e- even if and uh, e- even if there are people who aren't regarding this as, as default right now, they will eventually. Um, but then you know, um, engineering a default was was part of the the weapons that the West is turning on Russia, you know, forcing forcing investors to dump their. Debt. And certainly, the majority of non-Russian investors' holdings of Russian assets, those assets have, have either been frozen or they've been de- destroyed in value. Is there anything more that the West can do? Or has, you know, are these things now trading at pennies on the dollar? So really, more action would sort of just be uh, for the show of it, you know, so to speak. With the exception of the apparently sacrosanct energy sector. Mm. Yeah, basically. Um, I'm sure the West will think up more sanctions. They'll sanction more people. They've sanctioned the central banker now, which is interesting. Nabiolina, um, as of yesterday, Canada has sanctioned her personally. Um, I expect that more countries will follow. And I think is that the UK has sanctioned uh, military generals now. Um, so we're still very much focusing on individuals. Um, Will this work? I don't know. Um, This is an unprecedented package of sanctions, and yet it's not working. I mean, have to come back to that. It's having an effect on the Russian economy without question. Um, And there have been some retaliatory sanctions as well. I mean, virtually the whole of the UK government has been sanctioned by Russia, (laughs) which is quite hilarious. Um, So, And there'll be more of those. Will it stop Putin? I don't think so. It will only stop Putin if it makes it impossible for him to continue his offensive. And to do that, you've got to choke off the um, the supply of military equipment and arms, right, including parts and you know, potentially things like things like food. Um, and you've also got to improve the opposition. Which, so we come back to the same thing, which is sanctions are appropriate if they choke off the war efforts. Um, 
but they need to be coupled with arming Ukraine. And to my mind, we are not progressing far enough or fast enough on that. Um, and so I still regard the sanctions package, mammoth though it is, as half-hearted because we're not doing what we really need to do. And that's because we're afraid of escalation and we don't really think we're at war. Right. Francis, how exposed is the banking sector? I know that US-denominated banks uh, don't have a ton of Russian-denominated assets, with the exception of Citibank, which has deposits globally. And I think the exposure for Citibank is somewhere around $7 billion, they said in their most recent report. What about the banks that are denominated in Europe, in Germany, Alliance, Deutsche Bank, those types of companies? You know, I'm hearing a lot of reports about how a lot of their banking loans are sort of uh, uh, um, uh, loans to Russian oligarchs that are collateralized by aircraft that have been seized. We sort of, yeah. uh, how how big is the damage there? Um, Potential damage. Yeah. Well, it, it, the, the further east you travel in Europe, the more exposed the banks are to Russia. So one of the things we've seen is is um, banks such as Raiffeisen Bank and Erste Bank in Austria. Um, sort of rethinking their business. I'm like <laughs> thinking I, I'm really interested to see how Raiffeisen Bank will get out of Russia, but they're seriously considering ending all their all their ending all their Russian interests, and that's a major major retrenchment for them. There's a lot of their businesses in Russia, um, and even you know as you say, um, German banks like Deutsche and Alliance. Um, I said Germany is an Eastern European country. It faces east. It lends to Russia. Um, it always has. Um, yeah. And so if banks are forced to retrench on all of that, then they're going to take a hit to their capital. And it'll be interesting to see how the ECB hand- handles that because, um, you know, uh, the European regulators handle that, the EBA and the ECB handle that as to whether they um, go soft pedal on capital requirements for a while um, to allow them to recover. I don't know. We'll see. Francis, last month you wrote um, on your blog, CoppolaComment.com, uh, a piece called Sleepwalking into War. Why do you think the West sort of sleptwalked into this war? And since you've written that piece, to what degree have, has the West, has the West leaders woken up from that sleepwalk or are they still slumbering? Um, this is a kind of geopolitical question in a way. Um It is fair to say that the leaders of the West did not read the signals um, that made it clear what Putin's intentions were. And those signals have existed for 20 years. So they started really as soon as he came to power. And he came to power really on a mandate to break Chechnya, which was trying to seek independence at the time. And he succeeded. Um, how many people even know about that? About uh, and the the what's playing out in Mariupol right now is what played out in Grozny. In in the uh, in nineteen it, it, around it, it, shortly after he came to power. In other words, he crushed it. He reduced it to rubble. And he and there were there were war crimes in Grozny, which don't get talked about. The West doesn't talk about it. It's over. He did. He then seized parts of Georgia in two thousand and eight. You know, we were so focused on the financial crisis that we forgot about it. Um, the peace deal there was brokered by Sarko- by the French president Sarkozy, um, but it's been left with um, 
there being two quasi-independent parts of Georgia, the south of Ossetia, Ossetia and Abkhazia, um, which are Russian-facing, and which potentially would give Russia a means, uh, an excuse, if you like, to come in and do to Georgia what they've done to Ukraine. And they also are an obstacle to, to Georgia joining the EU because they're an unresolved border conflict. And then, of course, in 2014, and it was this, I think, particularly that made me think that, that I was talking about when I said they sleepwalked into this. We talk about Ukraine as if this is a new war, but it's not. It started in 2014 because that's when Russia invaded Ukraine. It was in 2014. It seized um, Luhansk and Donetsk then. I know it talks of them as independent republics and separatists and all the rest of it. Separatists actually are a small proportion of the population there. Most of the population are Ukrainian speakers um, who who never wanted this. Um, and, um, and Russia seized Crimea, uh, um, annexed it. Um, with a uh, with a referendum organised by Russia um, against the wishes of the Ukrainian government at the time, um, and we in the West kind of just let it happen and didn't really do anything to stop it. And so the message we've been sending over the last twenty years, including that um, uh, invasion in in twenty fourteen, is that Putin can seize parts, maybe even all, of um, smaller states in his neighbourhood, and nobody's going to say what, and nobody in the West is going to stop him. It's not that surprising, therefore, that he thought, I'm totally, I mean, he's been fighting a war in Ukraine for eight years, actually, because um, the invasion of Luhansk and Donetsk wasn't wanted by the population in the in Donbass. And so they've been, the, the Ukrainian, Ukraine has been fighting back, has been fighting a war against Russia in Donbass since 2014. So really we should have expected, based upon Russia's history and what the Tsars were always like, that um, he would be seeking acquisitions outside Russia's immediate territory. We, we've just forgotten, if you like, that's what Russia does. Francis, what do you think the West, Europe, the US should do that it hasn't done? And in what ways do you think that would mitigate the conflict, force Russia to uh, you know, end the war, have a good outcome? Uh, so I'm talking both sanctions, rearming, as well as perhaps military action. Yeah, it's really hard, isn't it? Because um, sanctions are a slow burn. They do work over time if they're, re- if they're, I mean, sanctions, are, they're like capital controls. They're always leaky. So, you know, they, you'll always find ways around them. Um, people who find ways around them will have to be stamped on. And countries that break them will have to be stamped on. At some point, the US is going to have to have a reckoning with India, I think. Um, and I'm a little bit disturbed by my own prime minister's behavior going and trying to seek a trade deal with India when India is is kind of really supporting Putin and clearly quite keen on the guy. Uh, I'm a bit disturbed by this, to be honest. Um, I, um, so there's that aspect, but they, they do work over time um, because they will, over time, throttle, throttle the war machine. 
they will make it impossible for make it very difficult for Putin to maintain his army, and that's important. I I know there are people who think that sanctions, if really strict sanctions, making Russia a complete pariah in the world, might um, bring about a regime change. And I look at North Korea and go, why? Um, you know, and Russia is a much bigger country than North Korea, and much better able to support itself. So I, I, I'm I'm sorry, I don't I don't get this. I don't buy it. But throttling the war machine, I think, is is more likely. Um, but they will only work because uh, they will only ha- they will only have time if uh, if the West also arms Ukraine. And it will have to arm it significantly and and take the risk that Putin will regard that as escalation. Um, and I think this is the problem that we've allowed ourselves to become so scared of escalation, and particularly of nuclear escal- escalation, um, that um, there is, are significant voices saying we can't afford to do anything. We can do some sanctions, but we can't arm Ukraine because Putin will take that as escalation. And oh no, we couldn't possibly intervene, even to provide to support to provide cover for humanitarian corridors, because Putin would regard that as escalation. Um, and I, even though we, the United Nations, if I recall correctly, did provide cover for humanitarian corridors in Georgia. So I kind of don't get this. The West has become ridiculously scared of 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 escalation, but at some point, I think if history is any guide, at some point the West is going to have to call Putin's bluff on the nuclear question. Um, I because I the way I see it is that even a partial success in Ukraine or something that Putin can build to build as a success in Ukraine will then lead him to further aggression against other countries. So that might include Moldova, that might include Georgia, and it might include Poland. And the reason I say that is that there was um, there's this nice little agreement between Putin and um, Lukashenko in Belarus, um, Lukashenko being a, quite a significant and murderous dictator, as you probably know, who is who who is um, illegal because he overthrew a democratically elected government and seized power with the backing of Putin, um, and uh, there was a report recently of a meeting between Putin and Lukashenko in which Lukashenko said he would like access to the Black Sea, and Putin agreed with him. Now. Belarus does not have access to the Black Sea because there are some countries in the way. The countries that are in the way are Poland and Lithuania. There's, um, th- there is Russia, of course, has does have access to the Black Sea because of the Kaliningrad enclave, um, not just St. Petersburg, obviously, but also because of the Kaliningrad enclave, which is between Lithuania and Poland. And it, it is cut off from the rest of Russia. So if you look at it from Putin's point of view and Lukashenko's point of view, um, create seizing what's known as the Suwalki Corridor, which is between Poland, which is the um, bit of Poland that separates Kaliningrad from Belarus, um, would be beneficial to both of them. 
are you if Putin is partially successful in Ukraine, let's say he manages to seize Donbass and establish a corridor along the Black Sea coast um, to Crimea and maybe even as far as Odessa, um, then I would say that Moldova is probably toast and um, and he might be feel empowered, given that Belarus hasn't been involved in the Ukraine conflict, to try and seize the Suwalki gap. And if that happened, then it would be hard for NATO not to be involved because the countries that he would be attacking would be NATO countries. I, I'm, I'm surmising here, but that's just the way I see it tactically, that if we... If the West stays out of this conflict and expresses fear of escalation in this conflict, they're empowering Putin to try it on with a NATO country, just to push the boundaries and just see what happens. Yeah, even though rearmament or armament and military actions, stuff like uh, no-fly zones, even though that carries with it a much greater military risk in terms of, of, of nuclear weapons, I think, and maybe I'm wrong, the the thing that would cause the greatest displeasure, let's put it, in the vote in the voting public in Europe would be the energy ban, because if you know 70% of natural gas for Germany comes from Russia and that's cut off, you know, they're really what is the ceiling for the price of natural gas, and is there an alternative? I know earlier you mentioned Olaf Scholz, the, the chancellor of Germany. He, in I believe late February, expressed a very ambitious plan to have a fleet of uh, natural gas tankers that would come from the U.S. and they they wouldn't need to regasify. And I, I you know I was speaking to a, a gentleman who knows a fair amount about that subject, and he said. What what Olaf Scholz wants to do it would take three to four years under normal circumstances. Uh, Olaf Scholz wants to do it in eight months, and that is technically possible, but it would require a you know, World War II like attitude, where this is the top priority, and there's going to be it's a war economy. This is you know th- this is nothing else. What have you gathered? How, is the is Germany putting enough resources on the line uh, to to? Build an infrastructure that would be an alternative to Russian gas, uh, and if not, you know how how realistic is it that they will go off Russian gas? I don't think Germany's taking this seriously, to be frank. Um, and yes, they're they're very unwilling to bite that bullet, and and to my mind, that really plays back to the general Western attitude, and I have to say this is led by the US that we are not at war that the war is between Russia and Ukraine, and the West is supporting Ukraine, but the West is not at war. I think this is wrong. I think the West is at war, and it's time we recognised it. We are at war with Russia. In fact, we've been at war with Russia um, since 2014. <laughs> that was essentially what I was saying in my piece, was we've been at war with Russia since 2014, and we never even noticed. And we certainly are now. Um, and if we leave it, it will only escalate more if we uh, accommodate Putin in some way um, by continuing to buy his energy or by um, not arming Ukraine sufficiently or by um, uh, persuading Ukraine to concede parts of itself to to Russia, um, it will just empower him to do more. It's not. It's not a sustainable. It's not. It's not. It's not a solution. Um, and and until we recognise that we are at war, 
Um, I think we're going to have, I think countries like Germany are going to find it difficult to do what's necessary um, to bring real pressure to bear on Putin. I, I think that that's the situation. And what are the consequences of that? The consequences of that eventually are that we will have a war in a NATO country and then we will be obliged to admit we're at war. And in the meantime, an awful lot of people will die. Francis, I you make a lot of really good points. I hope you would agree that the the West is definitely not blameless in this. And you said you know, Russia invaded in 2014. That was after a coup that was from the Ukrainian people, but also had a lot of support from the West. And you know what happened after that? You know, uh, uh, then President now President Joe Biden, his son was a contractor at a, a natural gas company that had half a million dollars. So, you know, he was paid half a million dollars to be a contractor. So I think there is definitely... Um... I've heard all these arguments. I mean, I watched Euromaidan revolt in 2014. Um, I, I was aware of what went on. Um, and um, yes, it's fair to say that the West has supported successive Ukraine governments Right. Um, does this mean that the Ukrainian people don't want their own, don't want to be independent, to have their own state elected by that and elect their own government? No, it does not. Never mind what happened in 2014. In 2019, Zelensky was elected with a landslide. Yes. We in the West were horrified when Lukashenko in Belarus overturned the democratic decision of his people and brutally repressed them. So why do we think that it would be okay to do that in Ukraine? I, I, it, it clearly isn't. Either, either uh, people um, deserve to have their own independence or they don't. What Putin is saying is he does not think that Ukraine is a real country, it, that, that its people shouldn't have independence. That's what he's saying, exactly as his puppet Lukashenko says in Belarus. And for the same reason, that they were historically part of Russia, from his point, from Putin's point of view, they were historically part of Russia. They are Russian. Therefore, Russian should be, Russia should be running them. Right now, the Ukrainian people beg to differ on this. Actually, so do the Belarusian people, but they aren't exactly being heard right now because, again, we in the West seem to have forgotten about them. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Ukrainian people have stood up to Russia. And whether or not the US backed the Euromaidan revolts, um, I'm inclined to say, so what? In the end, it comes down to what the people of Ukraine want. And they, want yes. and they overwhelmingly want their independence, their sovereignty, and their right to self-determination. Yes, I, I definitely agree. Francis, certainly when Putin invaded, the game plan was to overthrow the democratically elected Zelensky government and either annex it to Russia or more likely have a, a, a puppet regime uh, to Russia. Now that Ukraine has really demonstrated uh, its skill on the battlefield and uh, Russia has focused its attacks on the eastern part of Ukraine, do you think it's possible that uh, Putin would would settle for sort of a annexation of that eastern region, or do you think no, he's going all the way, and he wants after Ukraine, it's it's the next domino? The first rule of dealing with dictators is believe what they say, and if you actually read what Putin has said, um, in Russia, 
in Russian and what he the message he's selling to his people it is that he isn't going to stop I mean yes he might he he might in the short term sees Don sees more of Donbass but it won't be over because he doesn't think Ukraine should exist one way or another he wants to eliminate Ukraine well <laughs> I, I really I really enjoy hearing your perspective you know Francis I I know you know so much about the plumbing of the, the the financial system, and I also like hearing your political analysis too. You know, this is a financial show, but this is really this is a really important issue. So I'm I'm glad that you, you got to share it. We've moved on from pure finance, haven't we? Politics, geopolitics Geo- is everything now, isn't it? I mean, I, I and 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 my own views have moved on since then. You know, the, the golden age. I think the the kind of golden age of of monetary policy is independent from everything else, is coming to an end, and the realization is dawning that it, that that money is is a tool. Money and finance are tools to be used to to achieve political ends, mm. um, and very much so now. For the first um, for the first time in history, we actually use actually in a hot currency war. We've had currency wars before when cu- currencies have competed for supremacy and central banks have kind of competed with each other. That's not what we're in now. What we're in now is actually using currency finance as a weapon. And we've never been there before. Well, Francis, you've been so generous with your time, but if I could trouble you with one more question, which is what do you make about this whole Bretton Woods three argument? The fact that volatility in commodities and and real assets is going to impose a a, a, a higher amount of of credit stress on banks, and that that's going to be a problem. Well, a high amount of volatility um, is both a, a a risk and an opportunity, isn't it? There'll be some there'll be some people in banks making money out of that. Yes, they might have to get out of their Russian businesses, but they'll make on other things. And you know, commodity, yeah, commodity indexes and so forth might cause them a bit of stress, but they'll have some volatility traders in there making some money for them. So I'm, I'm not 100% convinced that banks are going to suffer all that much, at least not if they are doing what banks do. And there will be some banks that will be possibly caught out by it, um, but the majority of them will weather this storm, I have no doubt. Um, what banks don't cope with um, really is sudden political decisions that they weren't that they didn't foresee and that, that and that massively impact their business model. That's if we look back to 2008, that is essentially what happened. So the failure of Lehman was a political decision after a precedent had been set for bailing out a very similar bank. So Bear Stearns had been bailed out. So why wasn't Lehman bailed out? So banks were counting on Lehman being bailed out as well. Why wouldn't you? And so the political decision not to bail Lehman out, and it was a political decision, caught them on the hop. They weren't prepared for it. And so the whole thing froze. And, and that's essentially what banks don't cope with. But as long as these are political risks that they can see, they can foresee, they can manage, they can see both sides of the coin and they can see losses on both sides, losses on that side. OK, we can make money on this. And that's what they'll do. I think the challenge for regulators is going to be, and there might be some short term capital strains for some banks, particularly those very exposed to Russia. 
one way or another, or where they're suffering severe losses on collateral. I mean, you mentioned aircraft, and that, that's <laughs> fair enough. Those aircraft are probably never going to fly again. Um, <laughs> um, but, um, and also uh, um, whether they're um, kind of short-term um, swings in in banks bank um, stock values and so so forth are caught up in that sort of volatility as well. But again, I'm not really seeing kind of disastrous collapses. Um, so it will just be a question of, of regulators making sure that banks are able to withstand kind of sudden political issues like. I imagine, I mean, regulators all do stress tests now. I mean, imagine the next stress test is going to have what happens if um, Poland, if um, Putin invades Poland. <laughs> Don't you? And NATO's in war. Yeah. Well, uh, Francis, it's been fantastic getting the chance to hear your insights. Thank you so much for coming on Forward Guidance. Uh, people can find your writings at coppolacomment.com and they definitely should follow you on Twitter at Francis underscore Coppola. Francis Coppola, thank you so much again and I hope to, hope to talk to you soon. It's been an absolute pleasure as always. Take care now. <laughs>